welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I am Sarah, and this is my special co-host, Darcy. Say hi, Darcy. Hey, guys. Darcy, I grabbed her for two episodes this week. Crazy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So basically, this is the show where we talk about strange, crazy cases, weird stuff, and things that make you say, hmm, that was fascinating. In other words, if it's weird, wild, bizarre, and provocative, we're going to talk about it on this podcast. Today, we are going to talk about some criminal type issues. Uh, There has been a lot of information flowing today and jumping around out there about hair being used as evidence, hair analysis and bite mark evidence as analysis in court cases. So we are going to break it down a little bit for you folks today. These have always been things that have been, been interesting to me because I have heard cases where people have debated the authenticity or the sort of the science behind using bite marks as evidence. So that is what we're going to start out with first today. I found this article about bite mark evidence on the CaliforniaInnocenceProject.org. They are an organization that is kind of dedicated to going through and looking at cases where people have been convicted of crimes um, and determining that they have either the evidence that was used or the way that person was convicted was done in a way where they really believe that the person who was convicted was innocent. And so the people from this organization will take their time and their money and their resources and try to find ways to take the cases back to court to either get the person acquitted or figure out how to get that person out of jail. And there are quite a few people that are involved with the California Innocence Project. But um, let's just jump right in here on this one. So bite mark evidence has been introduced in trials all over the country and has sometimes been the smoking gun that leads to a conviction. I think in in quite a few instances it has been a major issue. I know that the Ted Bundy case, they had bite marks that were Right, yeah, but he was primarily convicted on bite mark evidence. Which is crazy because he had some wonky teeth. I know they say he's like charming and you know yeah. a handsome guy, but he had a monobrow and some wonky teeth. So he I had a fucking unibrow. That's the thing I don't understand with people. Like he's so hot. No, he no. had a unibrow. No, gross. Exactly. So and fix your fucking teeth, right? By mark evidence, an aspect of forensic odontology is the process by which odontologists or dentists attempt to match marks found at a crime scene with the dental impressions of suspects, which is fucking crazy that a suspect or that somebody in a criminal case would bite the person. It's like, so I'm glad you actually mentioned that because the article I found, um, so for, there's four types of forensic odontology. Um, and there actually is a regulating body. There's an American board of forensic odontology and they do offer a board certification. Um, basically and the they're dentists. That, they're just fucking dentists. They, they gave them a fancy name, but they're fucking dentists. They're dentists, but they've done, it's like being, you go to medical school and then you become like a medical examiner. Like, so you, it's not just anybody that can go do an autopsy or go do um, identification of unknown remains, um, dental malpractice, interpretation of oral injury, and then what we're talking about today, bite mark comparison. Um, so this is something that is seen in homicide, sexual assault, and child abuse. So that's why this kind of comes into play with all of these big cases. But essentially, if a victim is bitten by a perpetrator during a crime and police have a suspect, these odontologists or dentists can attempt to match the bite mark of the suspect's teeth to the bite mark on the victim. That right. is basically bite mark evidence in a nutshell. Yes. 
the person is injured, and, either they're dead or not dead, and they take a bite mark impression, and then they compare it with whoever the suspect is, and they say that they can match it with a certain degree of surety. Right. Okay. That has been yeah. what we have used in evidence in trials for the last couple of decades. Yep. However, they are now saying that this may not be such a reliable form of scientific analysis for criminal cases. So, although bite mark evidence has been used across the country in many criminal prosecutions, there is no real scientific support or research into the accuracy or reliability of bite mark evidence. Exactly. So, just kind of, you know, piggyback on that. So, reliability, there's two types of reliability. So, there's if I examine it and if you examine it, do we get the same results? And if I examine it one time, two weeks later, if I examine it again, do I get the same results? Right. So there's no studies that um, are at least published when I pulled my articles um, showing that there is any kind of reliability, either type no. of reliability to th these kind of methodology. Um, and there is actually no um, American Board of Forensic Odontology cr criteria for determining whether or not dental impressions actually match a suspect. I think it's kind of closer to like an ink blot test in many respects and that you kind of see what you want to see. Right. And there's, there's a level of bias that's introduced because to match the bite mark, you have to have the evidence of this crime that is committed. And then you have to be presented with a suspect. So in your head, you're already making a connection that this person is already being suspected of committing a violent crime. So that's already a bias that's introduced. It's not like it's a blinded study where you just look at a set of teeth and then look at this other impression that's made. You already have the connection of what's happened. Plus, this kind of brings me to the whole... Did you ever see that movie Red Dragon? No, I actually haven't. Well, the, the suspect in that particular movie wore a set of dentures on top of his real mm -hmm. teeth. And so he his bite mark evidence... When they compared him as a suspect, he wasn't wearing the dentures, and they were like, okay, hey, this is great. So right. I don't think it really accounts for changes and variations in, in dental care. You lose a couple teeth. You have teeth mm -hmm. pulled out. There have been cases like the West Memphis Three where there was a suspect in that that years after the crime, he actually had all of his teeth pulled out and had yep. dentures put in. Well, we should be careful. He's not actually a suspect. Well, he was at one point. Are you sure? Yes. From the, from the, the research that I did, the gentleman was a suspect at one point and they cleared him. But why would he go have all of his teeth pulled? Wait, wait, wait. Let's go back because you can cut this because this might be like controversial. But I was it not one of the kid's fathers? Yes. The one that was like drunk? I didn't realize he'd ever been cleared. I thought he was. I didn't think he was ever actually ever named as a suspect and that once they um, arrested the three that they, even though they were released, that they all took all for pleas so that they're no, not looking into it anymore. Well, I think that there are some conspiracy theorists and there are people that are out there that are still doing research on this that's been funded oh, by people, sure. various people throughout the years. But the West Memphis Three is definitely a topic I think that we've got to address as a whole show on its own. But well, we could do a whole you know three episodes on satanic right. panic but yeah well, that's, i was listening to an episode of true crime all the time where they were talking about the west memphis three uh -huh. and they were talking about potential suspects other than the three who had been convicted right and how they all the whole thing worked out but in any case 
Yeah. What I find interesting about this is that bite mark evidence has been introduced as being close to DNA in terms of accuracy. But there is yeah. no, there's no scientific validation for that notion. There's no way that they can look at a person's dentation or dent, uh, the person's dentition. Bite. Ugh, I can't speak tonight. <laughs> that is unique to a person in the same way that a fingerprint or a DNA is unique to an individual. So previously, right. dentists and odontologists have said, hey, a person's bite mark is just as unique as a fingerprint or a DNA. And that is simply not true from what they're finding now. Right. And that is, and this is something that we'll address when we talk about like hair and fiber evidence, but that is less of an issue with the field and more of an issue with the people that are getting up on the stand and saying they're forensic or they're um, expert witnesses. Right. Um, because if you're, if you're a scientist or you do research um, as a career, you should never, ever say, I can prove to you with 100% certainty that this is the case. You just, you just can't. Like, science doesn't work that way. You can say there's statistic probability that it's this and not this. But you can't say, like, yes, it is this person based on this bite mark evidence. Like, you can just say... It's similar, but I can't so tell you. These are some basically some cocky son of a bitches who are just lying when they got up on the stand, essentially. Mm-hmm. Or they believe right. themselves. They just had inflated their egos big enough to think that they were pretty much infallible. Right. Or, or I mean, a misunderstanding of the field, too. You right. know, I mean, there, there's a whole set of reasons why, why this happens. But, yeah, it's pretty much you should just be careful whenever you're giving expert testimony to say you just can't say anything 100 percent. you just can't well i think that sciences like these are just we've opened up the floodgates to say hey these aren't as accurate as we once thought and that's kind of why we're Mm -hmm. bringing this topic up but interestingly enough bite marks are often found at the violent scene of violent crimes murders assaults and sexual assaults who would have thought but surprisingly enough they show up in a majority of crimes and they are extremely yeah. difficult to accurately investigate, is what they say. Part of this is yeah. because victims of violent crimes can suffer multiple injuries, and what looks like a bite can actually be an unrelated injury. So basically they say that it can be a bite mark in itself can be extremely difficult to investigate, partially because the victims of violent crimes can suffer multiple injuries, and what looks like a bite mark can actually be an unrelated injury. Mm-hmm. So unless that person got a significantly strong indentation of a person's teeth on them, a lot of times there's, there'll be some question as to whether that's actually a true bite mark or not. It can be difficult right. to see that, especially if there's a lot of injury on the person's body. Well, and the bite mark on the actual victim can change over time because the skin is really elastic. And so if you have swelling or healing or bruising, that can actually change the way the bite mark looks on the victim too. That is true. Um, and unlike a dental impression at a doctor's office, bite marks are usually found on materials like skin, clothing, and soft tissue, which does not have the same sort of impact or impression as it would be if you were taking an indentation at, at a dentist's office. Right. Human skin is elastic, it swells, it heals, and it can deform or warp a bite so that it does not align properly. So I think dentists and odontologists have thought, okay, well, we see a bite mark on a person's body we take an impression of that bite mark we match it to the teeth and bam we're 100 percent there we're good we're golden but that's not exactly. necessarily the case because 
taking an impression of a bite mark is sort of a permanent thing. It's static. It stays the same. Whereas mm-hmm. you have a bite mark on a person's body and that impression of that bite mark can change over time. And there's just, it's very difficult to have that be an accurate thing 100% of the time. Right. Furthermore, experts often use pictures to compare a person's, den- a person's bite marks to that of the victim, increasing the unreliability of bite mark evidence. So they'll use a picture, which I guess can sort of create either a difference in the person's bite or just it's not as accurate as if they were comparing an actual life thing. So a picture. Right. Well, it's like a 2D image when you're comparing to a 3D component. Like it's right. just, it's very hard to make those connections. Plus, I think that it's it's relatively easy to alter a bite mark. Am I right on that? As far as I would think so, yeah. Filing or breaking off of teeth, or you know, over time, your your bite changes. Like your I teeth. mean, even getting a cavity filled changes your bite. Exactly. So another problem with bite mark evidence is that it's similar to other sciences. Wait is its similarity to other sciences such as fingerprint analysis and firearm analysis. They are subjective to the persons evaluating the evidence. Right. Different experts have found widely different results when looking at the same bite mark evidence. Such subjectivity has no place being touted as science in the courtroom, as it is extremely persuasive to a jury, especially when someone has been wrongfully accused. Yeah, the whole CSI effect. I think that we are much more likely to try to see the guilt in the case or the person when they're being convicted for a crime like this. We're much more likely to see that evidence and you'll be swayed in one direction so that you cannot remain neutral and and look at it sort of in an objective way when you're presented with that evidence. One of the most notable exonerations involving bite mark evidence is the case of Ray Crone. In 1992, Crone was wrongfully convicted of murder and sentenced to death. There was no physical evidence linking Crone to the crime except a unique bite mark found on the victim's body. At trial, a bite mark expert testified that Crone's teeth matched the bite mark on the victim. Upon further investigation, several experts told Crone's attorneys that the trial testimony was unreliable and the analysis was done incorrectly. Eventually, DNA evidence proved Crone's innocence and he was released from prison in 2002, but... He spent 10 years in prison for that shit. Yeah. Uh, bite mark evidence led to the conviction of William Richards at his trial in 1997. A, forent- a forensic odontologist analyzed his teeth and bite marks found on the wife's bo- on his wife's body. The expert testified that only 1-2% to 2% of the population could have left this bite mark and he could not... Ex- See, that is crazy because, like, you can't... There's no evidence to show that one to two percent of the like there is no database right. of people that have these characteristics of these of this like bite mark. There's there's just this is to get up there and say that is really makes me really mad. Obviously, this is somebody that's basically creating things the way he wants it to come out. But right, essentially, he could not exclude Richards as having given the bite mark. This led to his Richards conviction. Today, the same expert says that Richards could not have left the bite mark. This recantation hmm. led to Richard's exoneration, which has since been appealed by the district attorney's office. Today, Richard's remains in prison. So there's just such a wide <laughs> like, range of 
speculation and scientific analysis. And I just don't think this is enough of a science to be able to say with certainty that, hey, this person did it, here's the ev evidence why, and we can conclusively prove time after time that this evidence proves this, which right. is what's needed in a criminal case. Right. So there's been obviously a lot of um, calls to go back and investigate all of these cases that have been convicted on bite mark evidence and things like that. Um, and there was actually a president's council of advisors on science and technology um, that released a report on forensics in 2016. Um, and their report says that bite mark evidence analysis does not meet the scientific standards for a foundational validity and is far from meeting such standards. To the contrary, available scientific evidence strongly suggests that examiners cannot consistently agree on whether an injury is a human bite mark and cannot identify the source of a bite mark with reasonable accuracy. So for somebody to get up on the, the witness stand and say percent, one to two percent of the population has this specific pattern is just is bonkers. Like it's just it's just it blows my mind. What I also find interesting is that, in particular, in Richard's case, the expert testified one way, and then a couple of years later, he's like, oh, hey, never mind. <laughs> Which is actually pretty rare, because most of them aren't willing to say, oh, I fucked up. So that in itself, to me, says, hey, this is just not reliable. If a right. quote-unquote expert can get on the stand and testify, hey, this is 100% what it is, I believe in this, and then a couple of years later say, wait, 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 okay, I'm going to go 360, this is not that person's, this is how it is, and I 100% believe in this. It just says to me that it's very unreliable. <laughs> um, 360 would be taking him back to where he was in the first place. It would it be was. 180. <laughs> because they released him based on the fact that this bite mark couldn't have matched, but then they put him right back in prison. But the witness didn't do a 360. The witness did a 180. Oh, he changed, yes. He essentially That's changed all his testimony. <laughs> but about right. the whole case... It spun the whole case yeah. around its head because they had relied heavily on that evidence, that bite mark evidence. I actually, so I, when I was looking into this, um, I found a couple of cases. Actually, Ray Crone is one that I had found. Um, and there's one, John Pronti, or Pranti, um, he was convicted of killing Carla Brown, who was a 22-year-old college student in Illinois. And um, he was convicted in 1983. The murder occurred in 1978. Um, and she was beaten, strangled, and drowned in a barrel. Um, and semen was recovered from a rape kit, cigarettes, blood on a couch cushion, fingernail scrapings under her fingernails, and fingerprints were all found. But he was convicted based on witness testimony that placed him near the scene and a bite mark that was found on her shoulder and neck area. But the bite mark wasn't found until the body was exhumed two years after she was murdered. So I don't even know how they found this this bite mark. So he also, he apparently passed a polygraph, um, and appealed for DNA testing in 1993, but was rejected. He's still in prison. Um, and his case is actually being taken up by the innocence project. Um, but I also found another one that is, I think it's a book that either, either is about to be released or has just recently been released. Um, and it, it's two men who are convicted, um, for sexual assault and murder of two three-year-old girls in Mississippi. One was sentenced to life in prison. Um, the other was sentenced to death. Both were convicted based on bite mark evidence alone. Um, and in 2007, after 16 years of prison for one and 13 years on death row for the other, DNA testing revealed that 
only one person was responsible for the crimes. Um, and all of this kind of revolves around this, this dentist in this County. Um, and it's being handled by the Mississippi innocence project. So apparently this dentist, um, he had been doing, um, far like autopsies, like the number of autopsies he would, he was doing compared to the average was just an exorbitant amount. He was doing way more than what most people do and what most people close. And shockingly, a lot of them turned out to be criminal cases and which have since been overturned. Um, and some, you know, specifically were overturned due to a lack of scientific backing, um, of his methods, which were noted by judges at the time. So this dentist declared that marks found on the girls' bodies were bite marks, um, but they they weren't even they weren't even sure that they were bite marks in general. Um, and so he actually was. But he testified. Uh, he, so it's like for yeah, God fucking right. sake. Right, and he he resigned um, and from his position as the as the coroner, our medical examiner, and he was suspended from the American Board of Forensic Odontology. Um, in the early 1990s. So this just, you can just, I mean, you can do like a simple Google search. I found, I just typed in bite mark um, in the Innocence Project website and found 12 cases immediately. And those are just the ones that are already exonerated. That doesn't include the ones that have been already executed or that are currently that, that aren't being taken up by the Innocence Project. So there's just, there's so many of these that are just questionable of questionable scientific validity, um, and basically, we need to go back and find if there's any other methods to to try and convict these and uphold these convictions. It shouldn't rest on bite mark evidence alone. Yeah, that's some crazy shit right there. And that kind of leads us in very nicely to dovetail into the next topic, which is hair and fiber evidence. Because they are finding in much the same way that they, we had looked at this evidence in the past and experts had testified in many, 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 many trials in the past kind of creating this as a, as a reliable science. And now we are finding that it is not as reliable as we thought it was. I found no. a very interesting article on the guardian.com. This is going to kind of break open this topic for us on the show, but the article, I think is, I read this one too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The article is titled 30 years in jail for a single hair. The FBI's mass disaster of false conviction. So a dirty bomb of pseudoscience wrapped up nearly 268 cat cases, perhaps hundreds more, now begins the Herculean effort to right the wrongs. This is an article by Ed Pinkerton, and it came out in 2015, but I think this was really sort of the floodgates opening in that year. Mm -hmm. And now they're sort of wading their way through these thousands of cases that used hair and fiber evidence to convict people. But... In, in 2013, the FBI admitted that the foundations of what it called hair comparison evidence were scientifically invalid. That was a huge, huge, huge thing that came up in 2013. But George Parrott, I think this is, was this the same guy that you were mentioning earlier or is it a different guy? Same guy. Had spent almost 30 years in prison thanks to a single hair. It was discovered by an FBI agent on the bedsheet of a 78-year-old woman who had been raped by a burglar in her home in Springfield, Massachusetts in 1985. Parrot, or Perot, then 17, was put on trial despite the absence of physical evidence tying him to the crime scene. There was no semen, there was no blood, and so there was no way to conduct a conclusive DNA test. 
Even the victim testified the defendant looked nothing like her attacker. Her attacker. He had a short haircut and was clean shaven, while Perot had a long shaggy mop, a mustache, and a goatee beard. So that in itself is like, how the fuck could somebody like this look so different and grow right. that shit out, grow a shaggy right. mop, a mustache, and a beard in such a short period of time? It just doesn't happen. But there was a strand of hair. At a key stage in the 1992 rape and burglary trial, an FBI agent named Wayne Oakes took the witness stand, describing himself to the jury as an expert in hair and textile fibers. As would so many of the agency's trial witnesses, so many other people did exactly like he did in condemning hundreds of people to long prison sentences. Individual head or pubic hairs are distinctive, he told the court, to the extent that a well-trained specialist like himself could tell those belonging to one person from another. Oakes went on to bombard the jury with scientific jargon referring to the medulla, the cortex, and the cuticle of the hair, likening the task to comparing individual strands like, excuse me, likening the task of comparing individual strands to recognizing a specific person in a crowd. So he tried to make it look all scientific and all professional, and the jury ate that shit up. Did you have his quote that he said? It says, in 10 years, it's extremely rare. I will have known hair samples from two different people I can't tell apart. The self-proclaimed Fuck expert. you. Brand. So he was just like, I'm an expert. This is what I think, and fuck everybody else who disagrees with me because I'm so good that I can tell the difference between two people, just two people, not even like the odds are of like one in six hundred thousand. Two people, yeah. So the FBI agent's conclusion in front of the jury was emphatic: the hair found on the sheet exhibited all the same microscopic hair arrangement in the same way as the characteristics present in the known hair from Perot. I conclude the hair was consistent with coming from the defendant, he told the court. That particular testimony based on a single hair was so strong, so wrapped in the certainties of science, that it wiped out all doubts and inconsistencies in the prosecution's case. Indeed, it eviscerated the presumption of innocence. There was only one problem. The expert analysis delivered by Wayne Oakes under oath and effective enough to obliterate the man's one third of a man's life was wrong. In July, 2013, the FBI admitted that the foundations of what it called hair comparison evidence, a technique that its agents had used in hundreds of criminal cases, I would say thousands Mm -hmm. nationwide and spread through the training of state based detectives, potentially through tens of thousands of other cases was scientifically invalid. A preliminary review of the FBI's follicular flaws found that microscopic hair analysis could not scientifically distinguish one individual to the exclusion of all others. Huge. Statistical weight could not be given to comparisons to suggest a likelihood that the hair derived from a specific source. So basically, they got nothing. Right. And they were not, their their testimony is complete bullshit. Right. And so that was in 2013 that the, first of all, just the fact that the FBI did this meta-analysis of their own um, laboratory methods is is already a really big deal. They don't, you know, most people are reluctant to do that. Um, The fact that they admitted that they were wrong 
um, is also a really big deal. Um, but also that was in 2013 that they admitted they were wrong and he wasn't exonerated until 2017. Um, because yeah, because the Commonwealth of, cause this happened in Massachusetts and the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, um, originally opposed any retrial, but he eventually did get his on exonerated. They didn't want to have to pay his ass out for a wrongful conviction because that's when they can start right. fucking suing people left and right. Right. But, in this particular article, it says, in other words, microscopic analysis of hair, the very analysis that put George Perot and so many other people behind bars, is virtually worthless as a method yep. of identifying someone. It can only safely be used to rule out a suspect as a source of a crime, scene materials, or in a combination with a, with a vastly more accurate technique of DNA testing. So they can't, we should not use this method of analysis unless there are other things that can be used in conjunction with this. This should not be something we should be using ever as a sole right. source of evidence to put somebody behind bars. Right. And you can get DNA from a hair follicle. You have to have the actual like root of the hair. Right. Um, so just a hair that is like sloughed off. You That's can't get DNA from, but if you have the root of the hair, you can get DNA. So you can back this up. But it shouldn't ever solely rely on on hair characteristic analysis. That's just yeah. But that's not what they were saying. I mean, it wasn't as right. if they had taken DNA off the end and matched it up to the topic. They were saying, "Hey, this hair, the look of this hair matches the right. person's hair, so he's guilty." And it matches no other people. Yeah. So right. shit was just straight up crazy. Yeah. So so when I was looking this stuff up, um, I found an article that. In 2002, some, uh, a group studied this, and, and they released a paper that found hair analysis had a false positive rate of 12%, so saying a hair belonged to you and it didn't, 12%. False negative rate, saying it didn't belong to you and it did, of 44%. Shit. That's almost half the time that they're looking at a hair of a person who may have committed a violent crime and saying, no, based on hair fiber analysis... He did not commit. The, he or she did not commit this crime. So we're gonna let that person go ahead and go free, and they're gonna go ahead right. and commit God knows how many other crimes because they were allowed to be free because this evidence right. was just shit. And well, and they go on. And this is this is what I went on my soapbox about earlier. And you know, they, this paper suggested that most expert witness, witnesses should say hair could come from a particular individual, but there's no statistical foundation. Um, for, for saying that it belongs to one person over another. And yet experts will get on the stand and make claims based on their own experience. Um, and when this happens, it often results in a DNA exoneration. And the big one that came out that I remember when it kind of opened this whole thing up, I want to say this story came out in 2017. Um, but there was a man named... Sante Tribble, and he was 17 years old in Washington, D.C. in 1978. Um, and a taxi cab driver was murdered, um, robbed and murdered in front of his own home, and police immediately identified Tribble. Um, there was nothing else to, to connect him to this crime. Um, and two FBI analysts got on the stand and said a single strand of hair that was found in, like, the ski mask that the... the um, attacker war that that matched triple and he was sentenced to 20 years to life. So he served 28 years before a new analysis showed not only did the hair not match, it wasn't even human. It was dog hair. It's just 28 crazy. years. 
That's crazy. Yeah. Off one hair. And so, it makes me right. very, so, very uncomfortable that they could convict somebody off one hair. Right. And so he was one of three people in D.C. alone that was exonerated in 2009 from false hair matches. So as a result of this whole thing blew up, this is before the whole FBI scandal blew up. So it was actually these cases that prompted the Department of Justice to announce this nationwide review of all hair and fiber analysis handled by the FBI before 2000. So it's a total of more than 21,000 cases. And that article that you were reading about George Perot, um, as of 2015, they had only analyzed 500 yeah, of those so cases. Who knows how many and they reviewed by now. And, right. And they found that 26 of 28 FBI analysts provided either erroneous statements or erroneous lab reports. Um, and 257 of 268 cases where expert testimony was used to accuse a defendant involved erroneous statements. 35 of these defendants received the death penalty. Um, errors were identified in 33 of these death penalty cases. Nine have already been executed, um, and five, five others died of other causes while on death row. So you have 14 people. And those that are just the cases been, that they've studied. That's not all the cases. Right. Right. It's just a small sample of ones that they studied, which is right. scary. So yeah. this article continues on with saying the federal agency has admitted its mistakes and is now working hard to address the miscarriages of justice on national level. But state authorities are proving much more sluggish in their responses. So federally speaking, we're all on board with realizing and recognizing that this is not a reliable science, but that on the state level, there's a lot more slow pressure that is building, but they haven't done the same kind of analysis that they've done on these cases on the federal level. Typical is the case of Timothy Bridges, who was, a 20, who was 23 years into his sentence in North Carolina. He was convicted of the 1989 sexual assault and beating of an elderly woman in Charlotte. The criminal investigation uncovered no physical evidence of any sort to link Bridges to the scene. Like Perot, no semen or fingerprints were found. No blood or DNA of any sort was found either. But there were two hairs collected on the victim in the victim's home and analyzed by examiner in the, in the state of North Carolina who had been trained by the FBI in precisely the same now discredited techniques. The two hairs the examiner told the jury at trial had likely originated from the defendant. Likely originated being the key words here. Bridges was sentenced to life in prison based on, based on those two hairs that likely originated from him. This month, lawyers acting for Bridges with the backing of the Innocence Project petitioned the, co- the county court to call for a retrial. The state's attorney general is opposing such a measure, but has initiated a search for the hairs in hopes that the DNA testing could be carried out that would provide reliable clues. There are literally dozens and dozens and dozens of people that are in this same situation where there was no other evidence collected at the crime scene except a couple of hairs and have been put behind bars based on a couple of hairs. And these are also the ones we're talking about are also just the ones where they still have evidence. Yeah. So I mean, knows? there's how many cases where evidence it no longer exists. Yeah. It's insane. So, and that's just addressing the hair evidence there is also a whole shit ton of cases with fiber evidence, carpets, textiles, pet hair, 
everything else besides human hair, where the courts are having to dig through these thousands and thousands of cases that have come through and created convictions for people based on science that said 100% conclusively, hey, yeah, that's a match. When that's right. not the truth. About fiber evidences I did about hair and forensic odontology, but it, it is along the same lines, right? Like you're looking at the characteristics of a hair or a fiber and saying whether or not this belongs to another fiber from, from carpet or clothing or anything like that. And immediately I think of Wayne Williams, the Atlanta child killer. And there is a lot of debate over whether or not he is actually guilty of these murders. So if you don't know, this was, um, I believe this was in the eighties, um, there were a lot of African-American children that went missing and were murdered in and around the Atlanta area. Um, and there were a lot of questions about who who was doing it. Was this part of um, the Ku Klux Klan? Because they were still um, very prevalent in Georgia at the time. Um, and then you had the argument, you know, the FBI said, no, it's probably not a racially motivated thing because these are taken, these kids are being taken from historically African-American neighborhoods. So somebody... Um, a white man or, you know, somebody would stand out um, that didn't, that didn't quote unquote fit into the area. Um, And so he was actually connected to these crimes because he was, they started staking out bridges because a lot of these kids, the bodies were being thrown off of bridges into the waters. Um, And they staked out bridges and they didn't actually see him do anything um, to get rid of evidence, but they heard a splash in off of the bridge um, and then they caught him driving off of the bridge. And then when they searched his car, they found carpet fibers um, that were either matched to his the carpeting in his car or the carpeting in his house. I don't specifically remember exactly which, but that had been found on some of the bodies. Yeah. So now he was caught, quote unquote, leaving the scene. There wasn't it wasn't that they found a body after the splash. They just heard a splash and picked this car up at like two or three in the morning. Uh, and then they match this carpet fiber evidence. So there's a lot of people out there that wonder if this Atlanta child killer was caught and if Wayne Williams has been in prison this whole time, you know, being innocently convicted of, of these serial murders. What do you think? Do you think he did it? I do think he did it. Um, to me, I, I just, I think that to me, the, the, the whole thing of getting him coming off of the bridge, um, what the hell would he be doing out there at two thirty in the morning anyway? Like just hanging out, right. and kicking it. He he. So he was like a he was kind of like a low key music producer, and he would his whole thing was he would go to high schools and recruit talent. Um, and he said that he had an appointment with the kid like the next morning and was driving around late at night to find the address. What? But he couldn't. Yeah, but he couldn't reproduce the address, and I don't think the phone number was. A, a real real phone number to anything. So there's a, there's a, there's been a lot of podcast episodes and there's a whole podcast season on this. So I, I actually do think he did it. But when you're talking about the big linking physical evidence being fiber, carpet fiber that was found on a body and then has also been linked to, um, you know, him via his car, his house where he lived with his parents, it just really becomes very tenuous to me. Um, and it was supposed to be a pretty rare fiber, like an unusual color or unusual texture or something like that. But, um, it's just, it's just a very interesting case because of the serial killers out there. I think this is one where there's 
probably the most debate about whether or not he did do it. Yeah. Well, as I mentioned earlier, I have a big problem with conviction of a person based upon that as the sole evidence or the strongest part of evidence. But on the other hand, it's like, if you can't necessarily rule the person out, but you can't necessarily 100% conclusively prove they did it, what do you do with them? You let them free so they can keep killing well, people? Like, from that's a, from a, a prosecutor's standpoint, you should, right? Because you only get one chance. So if you can't prove your case and they are acquitted, that's it, right? I mean... That's how our justice system works, indeed. But at the same time, right. you know this person did it. It's just... And you let them well, free and, and they go kill thing. 15 it's, or 20 other people. Right. And, and a lot of times what happens is you, you can't, and especially in cases of serial killings, you can't prove somebody did it until they do it again. You know, like unless you have like DNA evidence linking them to it, like the Golden State Killer, you know, you, you pretty much have to wait until they do it again and you can find more evidence to link them to it. Um, but well, I feel like, time, go ahead. Well, the, the counterfactual is if he didn't do it, which I, I personally don't think is the case, but if he did not do it, there's somebody who has murdered these children and has never been caught. And he's running around you know? out there now to this day, probably right. maybe killing more. Who knows? But yeah, I mean, who knows? so when I'm thinking about these cases and when I'm thinking about this bit of evidence, it just really like upsets me that they've used this as a sole piece of evidence to convict people who were actually innocent. But at the same mm -hmm. time, I think criminal investigation back in the day was wildly inaccurate, first of all. And I think that some police officers and detectives looking through these cases were lazy, first right. of all. Not all of right. them, but some. And they got away with sort of railroading a certain person in it because they didn't want to do the work that they needed to do to show the real evidence. And, then and there was a lot of media pressure or community pressure to solve the crime. And so right. they, they just have to find somebody. And then the third piece of that is scientific evidence and science behind some of these techniques has improved 100 fold over the last couple mm -hmm. of decades. So now that there, there are so many other ways that they can collect evidence to prove that somebody did it and so many more ways to catch a person now. So mm -hmm. I honestly think that they just, fucked up a lot of cases back in the day because they just didn't have the science backing. They were lazy and there were all these other factors that had allowed this to happen, this miscarriage of justice. So in the meantime, what do we do with these people? We let them out. We give them a couple million dollars a piece. Like what, what do we do with these people that were wrongfully convicted? Well, I think, I mean, that's the whole premise of the civil court cases, right? So like, you have to sue and, and prove that they violated your civil rights by by removing any sort of income or value to your life but for that amount of time that you were um, imprisoned, where you could have been working or you could have graduated college, you could have done all these things and earned income. Um, so you have to prove how much you're worth, but then you have other states where it's actually capped out. So you'll have states where the max you can get is $200,000 per year. So if you're locked up for 14 years... You have some states where you can get $20 million and other states you can only get seven, seven million dollars, you know, so it's, 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 it's just a whole, but I do think that there's, there's gotta be a way to compensate for the loss of your life. basically. Your, yeah. And your ability to earn money. 
Um, because now you not only have you lost however many years of your life to being in prison, falsely in prison, but now you still also have the stigma that you were in prison. You can go and tell somebody I was exonerated and there are legal consequences for not hiring me based on my arrest record. That doesn't make him make everybody willing to just say, Oh, okay, cool. Let's go ahead and have you start advertising for us. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and again, this is a sort of a tricky thing too, because now after all these cases are starting to be reanalyzed, is this going to bankrupt the judicial system if all these people start suing? Well, that's based on the premise that the judicial system already isn't financially strapped. (laughs) But in particular, I was thinking of this case. I think I just saw it in the news about the gentleman who spent 39 years in prison and they just let him free because they figured out he was innocent. And mm-hmm. they gave him like 20, $21 million for mm-hmm. 40 years of his life. I think he was 70-something when he got out of jail. Right. I'm trying to figure out who this, right. this guy's name was. And, and that's the other guy. thing is there are also cases where rather than fully exonerate you, they'll, they'll just let you out. And so if you're not exonerated of the crime, you have no legal standing to sue the state. Yeah. Or the county or whatever it is that, that imprisoned you too. Which so that's that's the other legal kind of loophole. Interesting. That, yeah. So I'm looking at this case. I found this article on the Telegraph. It's an innocent California man who served 39 years in jail for murder awarded 21 mil, $21 million in compensation. A California man who spent 39 years in prison after being wrongly convicted of murder is to receive $21 million in compensation. Craig Coley was jailed for the murder of Rhonda Wright in 24 and her son Donald, age 4, in 1978. Mr. Coley, who is now 71, was freed and pardoned by California Governor Jerry Brown. So he was pardoned. He wasn't necessarily exonerated. Huh. After he was cleared by DNA evidence during a lengthy oh, okay. reinvestigation of the case. A Vietnam veteran and night manager at a local restaurant, Mr. Coley had been involved in a relationship with this woman who had broke, which had broken down. She was strangled with a rope and her son had been smothered in his bed. His conviction was partially due to the testimony of the next door neighbor who told the jury she heard banging. She also said she saw Mr. Coley's truck parked outside the building and that some, somebody apparently matching this description drove it away. The jury is the first in the first trial failed to reach a verdict and Mr. Coley was convicted of following was convicted following a retrial and sentenced to life in prison without parole. The fight to overturn the verdict was aided by Mike Bender, a police detective in Simi Valley, who expressed concerns about the case as far back as 1989. So this is interesting. They eventually found DNA to sort of exonerate this, this gentleman. Um, so they did, did have proof to be able to say this person conclusively didn't do it. So he was pardoned, but they had the, clue, the proof right. that he didn't do it. Right. Which I find very interesting as well. Well, an eyewitness testimony is a whole other can of worms. Yes. And that's a whole episode in itself because I think that it has been proven to be historically very unreliable. Right. And we could get into dozens and dozens and dozens of cases where people swear up and down they saw one person and they never saw that person. Right. Their testimony changes through the years and then they suddenly see that person when, because they've received pressure to see a certain thing or a certain person that they want to be convicted. Right. But... Again, this case with this gentleman, Mr. Coley, who was exonerated and released from prison and received that $21 million. Does, does he deserve $21 million for spending 39 years in prison? 
I mean, I don't know how to make an argument for or against the value of it, you know? I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's, he certainly had his civil rights violated. Yes. You know? And because being in a relationship and breaking up with somebody doesn't constitute being imprisoned for. But here's the deal, though. He was a like a restaurant guy. Would he have been mm-hmm. able to make $21 million in his lifetime or even millions of dollars in his lifetime? Well, I don't think it's just like how much you could, like your potential earnings. I think it's also like a compensation of... For pain and um, suffering, basically. Pain and suffering, which like when you, you know, when you get into pain and suffering, that goes into like sometimes the hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, which is just crazy. So like, and a, a lot of times with things like that, with exorbitantly high you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Awards. Settlements. Yes. Yeah. The, you know, it's appealed and then it's like significantly reduced. So the money they actually get is typically far less, but I think a lot of it too is the jury making a statement. Yeah. Um, I mean, I get that, that consequences. but I just don't think $21 million is a good number to give somebody for something like that. And again, you know, there's no really way to measure it, but really $21 right. million Really? Like, I think five million would have been just as sufficient or two million would have been just as sufficient. He's going to be living his life comfortable as fuck for the rest of his remaining years. I don't think he needs 21 million as opposed to five million or two million. I see that argument, but I also just, I don't know. I just like, it's not as if he was just not living at home for that amount of time. Like he was in prison. You know what I mean? For murder. Like, that's not like a, that's not like a white collar prison where you just, you know, get to watch TV and fuck me in the ass prison, file your nails and (laughs) watch your stories prison. You know what I mean? Like it's, I don't know. I I don't know how to make an argument for 21 million. I don't know how to make an argument for 5 million. Um, I, I just believe that there, there should be some financial compensation because yeah, you I'm know, not, there's the other thing. I'm of, not saying there shouldn't they, be any compensation. I'm just saying that 21 million seems like really excessive. I mean, especially yeah, no given the fact money. that, like, number one, it's bankrupting people. Number two, the taxpayers are paying for that. And number three, who is losing money because this gentleman gets 21 million? What programs are going to have to have their pay and their program funding cut so that this guy can get 21 million? I think that's a pretty direct way of looking at it because I don't, I'm not sure. I mean, I don't think that it money all comes has to from come from pot. some. That money has to come from someplace, it, right? But it's I don't think that it's being pulled directly from one institute and being given to, to this. I think it's. I mean, it's it's something that I don't know. I don't know how it all works. That's the taxpayers the are paying for that shit either way, right? But they're not paying more because of this 21 million. They're paying their taxes. But that's got to come from somewhere. It's got to be taken out of some funding yeah. or something. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 don't have, I don't have a good argument for why it shouldn't be $21 million, basically. There should be a better way to calculate it, and there should be a cap. Yeah. Some states do cap it. I also think there should be a cap on medical awards, though. So There I mean, is a cap in... Did you listen to Dr. Death? No. Man, if you have, like, concerns about being put under for surgery, just don't listen to it. But 
Um, there actually is a cap in Texas. I think it is the max medical payout you can receive regardless of what happened of to negligence? you is $200,000. Wow. Yeah. I do know that there are some Which states that cap it out. insufficient. That does not seem sufficient, but being able to get tens right. of millions of dollars is also quite insane. Because, and, and well, now medical malpractice though, That's your different. medical malpractice would cover that payout. But I think it just and gets so, crazy after a while. I mean, I get it if like the person sure. loses their life or if they're handicapped for life where they can't walk or talk or they've got some serious shit that's going on because of it. But let's say somebody, they leave a sponge in somebody's body. And that but you wouldn't gets, typically get that person tens gets, of millions of dollars. The for person that. gets 2 million. Like that seems ridiculous you, to me. I think that case is pretty rare, but like in Dr. Death, it's, I think he had 31 total victims of his 33 total patients that either died or were severely paralyzed because he was a spinal surgeon. Great. And <laughs> the max payout that they could receive is $200,000 That's for 31. Crazy. And the, I mean, just the whole, like that whole thing is crazy about how he was still allowed to operate and all of this, but just $200,000 for the injuries that he caused seems very insufficient. Yeah, again, that's a whole episode probably in and unto itself because that's... I mean, that's a whole series. It's <laughs> already been done. <laughs> but um, I think that we are going to wrap up the episode for now since I think we've pretty much hit this nail on the head, even though I just feel like we could probably talk about it a whole lot longer and get into it in a whole lot more detail. But we did cover off on some cases and I think gave the listeners a pretty good view of bite mark and fiber analysis and hair analysis, maybe some parts of that a little better than other parts, but this show is bizarre and fascinating details, not the whole picture every time as the Encyclopedia <laughs> Britannica would cover it. So we don't aim to or intend to like cover off on these issues in 100% entirety in the same way that you would learn in a college level course. Keep that in mind. But I try. All right. Well, we try. We try to give like a, an overview and a pretty good picture so that the listeners hear the interesting parts and, uh, and for, can forget about the not so interesting parts. But this is the part in the show where we are going to say goodbye. Uh, please rate, review, and subscribe if you have any questions or comments. Or suggestions, please send us an email. We would love to hear from you guys. Our email is thebfd at gmail.com. We're going to go ahead and put that in the show notes. Please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild stuff. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your best life. Bye. See ya. Bye.